India's maritime power, challenges of journalism in China, and censorship on TikTok and WeChat. Welcome to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. In this week's episode, we discuss the latest frictions in Australia-China relations. So here's the irony, is that precisely at the time that this is happening and precisely at the time when we see barley and beef and wine uh, all being effectively sanctioned, uh, we are selling more iron ore at higher prices to China uh, than we have ever done in our history. And Aspie's new report on TikTok and WeChat. What we tried to do with this report was try to gauge how much of that censorship and surveillance is being applied to foreign users of the app. But first, Michael Shoebridge spoke with Dashana Barua, non-resident scholar at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, who is currently in Japan working on a book project with the Sasakawa Peace Foundation. They discuss India's Navy and Maritime Goals, the Quad, Australia-India bilateral relations, and more. Darshana, great to have a chance to talk to you, uh, to hear a bit more about an Indian perspective on maritime security and, and broader Indo-Pacific matters. I, I wonder if we could start with um, whether there is a, a gap between India's policy directions and intent and uh, the, the military capability and doctrine that, that might give effect to that policy. And we've heard debates about things like a 200-ship navy, um, but, you know, that doesn't look like it's funded at the moment. And we've heard um, differences about acting east and whether or not the, the military is a part of that. How would you describe um, any uh, gap between policy and implementation for India? Uh, first, thank you so much, Michael, for having me on this episode. Really glad to be uh, discussing these issues with you. In terms of the gap or in terms of the difference between the policy and implementation of India's Indo-Pacific uh, initiatives or approach, um, there are two aspects to it. One is the diplomatic and political efforts, and the second is the role of the military. And diplomatically and politically, India will move faster than the military in the wider Indo-Pacific, uh, simply because the Indian Ocean most certainly is the primary area of interest. It is the home theater for the Indian Navy. So any developments here or any changes in this region directly affect India's own security environment and its own pol political interest. So the priority area would be the Indian Ocean region. To say that, just to put things in a little bit of a perspective, the Indian Navy's budget is really 14 to 15% of the defense budget. So it isn't really that much to be able to kind of simultaneously invest in its capabilities across the Indo-Pacific, which would require a sustainable presence in South Pacific, Western Pacific, and across the Indian Ocean, which includes for India, eastern coast of Africa to the Straits of Malacca, which is a wide area. So there will be a difference in terms of that uh, politically and diplomatically, India would do much more. Uh, it doesn't mean that the Indian Navy is not present in the other theaters, uh, whether it's the Western Pacific or the Southern Pacific, South Pacific, but that its priority and its strength lies in the Indian Ocean. And in the mm -hmm. face of a new changing environment and in the face of a new changing security landscape in the Indo-Pacific, India will first to prioritize to invest in the Indian Ocean, strengthen its capabilities before 
looking to really sustain itself in a similar way in the in the Pacific. But Tashana, from my point of view, that's a great foundational set of capabilities. So the Indian Navy has quite significant power projection already, and we'll build more of that with that primary focus. Um, I think there's an interesting internal debate going on, as I understand it, in um, thinking about whether the primary purpose is seek and uh, control or maybe uh, seek denial. And uh, a shift towards more of a denial capability gives a whole lot of possibilities that I think look quite attractive from an Australian point of view. You know, greater undersea warfare capability, greater investment in submarines. That looks like it would be quite a, a big contributor to regional security. Uh, how do you see that debate going? Um, that's correct. I mean, even if you actually just look at the Indian Navy's priority and the kind of the in initiatives India is looking to do, so you can really map out India's priorities right now in um, between two things, which is one is MDA, Maritime Domain Awareness, and second is anti-submarine warfare. Uh, and that includes um, information sharing, includes surveillance, it includes kind of ISR capabilities, which are really addressed towards one for the MDA to be aware of movements coming in and going out of the Indian Ocean. So that would include your subsurface vessels. So again, you'd need kind of your capabilities to monitor, track, and engage with uh, submarines. And the second is, and, and it's pretty, I mean, it, it reflects for India's relationship with both US and France has been there is a growing interest in ASW capabilities, ASW missions to do that together and to build experience and, and, and capability. And uh, in, a, in a way, if you look at India's recent agreements, uh, which are the logistic supports agreements, which are, uh, and, and white shipping agreements, which allow for India to exchange information, which allow for India to, if, if, if possible, to access its partners' military bases, it can kind of um, give India an opportunity to conduct MDA missions and ASW missions from those areas, which give you access over key choke points and trading uh, trading routes. So uh, take India and Australia, and if you have collaboration between, say, Andaman and Nicobar Islands and Cocos Keeling, you really have the two ends of the uh, area under which a subsurface vessel will likely go through, whether it transits Malacca Straits or the Indonesian Straits. So yes, if you have key, access, key choke points. Yeah. Absolutely. So if you have access to these two island territories through India-Australia collaborations, uh, using your assets, again, uh, also to add, we also use common platforms like the PH. And India has started kind of attaching a PA to each of its naval exercises. And they have continuously, they've continued to do this, uh, actually starting 2017. Now it is almost regular that almost every exercise with our key partners, there is an attached to the naval exercises so it tells you about it's kind of you know the kind of exercises it's trying to do and kind of areas it prioritizing so it's definitely it's an it's an area of priority and i see that mdn asw as the two key areas that the indian navy will look to kind of upgrade its capabilities and also learn more or do more with its partners mm, now that's interesting because um, people have looked at the quad arrangement and said well it's the Australia-India bit that is the weaker leg of the quad. I wonder if that's true anymore. I mean, I think I've heard you talk about the bilateral relationship is actually in quite good shape now and maybe moving faster than people expected. Absolutely, I think I think the quad conversation and the and the whole debate about uh, some tension between India and Australia because of you know Australia not being a part of Malabar has really 
been stuck to the kind of the policy commentaries and uh, in the in, in kind of the strategic community because at the government level and also just at the bilateral level if you look if you see yes quarters has has had its political history and india has had taken its time to work through that but while that has been worked through the relationship has really made a uh, considerable and significant progress politically diplomatically strategically and militarily i mean the last iteration of oz index is one of the biggest that india australia has um, ever done it uh, i don't think so either in canberra or in delhi malabar having australian malabar is even in the the most uh, is the priority or the most dominating conversation uh, on either side because the relationship is doing the uh, the bilateral relationship is doing so much more uh, yes quad and malabar is one of the things that india and australia seek to do but it's no longer that kind of you know the thing that we have heard or seen that defines the india australia relationship the india australia relationship for all its hesitation and questions has really come a long way and is much uh, more than the quad and malabar today yes and, and right now it's personified in our two leaders isn't it the relationship between prime minister modi and prime minister morrison it's a very close working partnership that's continuing despite the pandemic yeah i, I wonder if we could um shift because we've got to cover a lot of ground in a short period of time a shift uh, to have a quick look at uh india cooperating economically strategically and militarily with southeast asia um you know the, from my point of view i think india is is a part of doing important things like supporting international law when it comes to the south china sea early supporter of the arbitral tribunal finding but also india has developed some very close partnerships with different countries in southeast asia so uh do you see that as an area where the defense relationships are, are going to grow and keep pace with the economic relationship and in particular what what's your view about the state and future of indonesia india relations um so in terms of uh, kind of india india's engagement with southeast asia has been uh, through two approaches one is with asean as a kind of a multilateral regional institution and india has placed uh, asean really in 2018 the prime, prime minister modi's uh, speech at shangri la dialogue outlining outlining india's indo pacific vision it talks about asean as a central pillar which essentially alludes to the importance of uh, regional institutions for the indo pacific the other is bilateral relationship which india has kind of had with southeast asian nations in which singapore has played a leading role singapore was important in bringing india into the asean fold as well so india has continued to work with uh, countries like um, singapore vietnam with vietnam we have done number of strategically uh, important uh, collaborations including collaboration in its exclusive economic zone which is uh, which is claimed by china so that has been very political and economic uh, political and strategic even if it did not make as much sense economically in terms of philippines also we have seen india refer to the south china sea as west philippine sea on philippines request and kind of sort of those things um, that it has militarily also uh, we can we can expect india to do exercises with asean as a group as and when it's invited as and when the opportunity arises but then in terms of its presence in the in, in the south china sea in 
in a, in a way that the Americans are present, right, the way the Japanese are present, I think there will be a little bit of a difference because, again, the South China Sea is a secondary area of theater and also resources. India will really be clamoring for resources if it aimed to maintain itself in the South, uh, South China Sea the way it does in the Indian Ocean. So strategically and in terms of an effective way would to really do something what I said about India-Australia, if India and Australia were to collaborate and say that, you know, we will have kind of monitored these choke points so we would know what is coming in and going out, which is within their area of interest, area of priority or resources are available. And then the South China Sea is coordinated between the countries where it is an area of priority for them. So which would be Japan and Australia and uh, sorry, Japan and US and Australia to an extent. So I think that kind of a model with perhaps what India would look to um, mm. instead of kind of just going everywhere with limited resources that you have. And, and China, that fits with the quad concept, doesn't it? That, that absolutely. Would be entirely consistent with that. Uh, now, we can't have this kind of conversation without talking about China. Right. Um, so, you know, one, one theory that, that can float around about India and China is because of that land border and the very tense situation there, and China's relationship with Pakistan, would India trade off maritime issues to have more stability on its land borders? And this is um, you know, a very transactional way that Beijing might like to operate to, to make a deal like that. Do you think uh, that that kind of thinking would have any weight inside India or is it is it quite a different perspective? I think that kind of a thinking did exist where India thought India felt that it did not unnecessarily kind of rile China or do something that might you know make China uncomfortable because of concerns in at the continental border. But the Indian-China relationship has drastically changed since this summer, since the standoff in, in Ladakh in June, where we lost uh, members of our armed forces for the first term, for the first time in, in decades. And that has really hit India at its core, because I think India was somewhere hoping that it might be able to work with China in whatever com competitive way possible, but to kind of, you know, make things, uh, make it work. But even as India has continued to engage in kind of talks after the standoff in in the last week, we've had more incursions and more problems. So the the narrative has changed significantly. I mean, now it's more about, you know, look, China's going to do what it thinks is right. China's going to do, China's going to assert what it thinks it's its own. It's going to assert its claim. And, and India's consideration for China by saying we will not develop the Andamans or we will not do this at sea, it's not going to buy India any goodwill if at the border, China is not satisfied with whatever it has. And actually, this summer has changed the narrative on maritime security uh, in India's own foreign policy conversations and engagement, where now there is, a, I mean, for the first time, I'm seeing conversation, even from retired military and diplomatic communities saying that India needs to focus on strengthening its advantages in the Indian Ocean, which could be a pressure point for China. Then mm -hmm. India needs to fortify its uh, its position in the maritime domain because ultimately China, if it really is seeking to be a global power, if it's really seeking to be at at, a, at the as the other superpower, it will have to control its sea lines of communications going through the Indian Ocean region. And geography is in India's favor at this point in time. And combine it with the opportunity it uh, presents to Delhi through its collaborations with Australia, with France, with US and Japan. I think India really has. 
a potential or a chance to manage this competition at sea. And I don't see, I mean, uh, I don't think so. India would really trade that off unless there is something, uh, I, I don't see it happening. But then again, uh, what goes on in the policymaking circles is sometimes hard to, <laughs> hard to understand uh, and, and see. So, uh, but given the circumstances right now, I only see a continuous kind of, upgradation or continuous strengthening of India's maritime policies and because India has seen benefit for it. India has seen its own profile raised through the Indo-Pacific approach. It has seen really gain political and diplomatic good political and diplomatic capital by engaging in this approach in working with people, with with countries. I mean, if you look at UNI, U, uh, India's bid for the UNSC Council, all of its squad partners were one of the first to support it, whether it's initiatives on International Solar Alliance or Indian Ocean uh, kind of Indo-Pacific Oceans Initiative or Co Coalition for Disaster Resilient Infrastructure. Australia, Japan, US are one of the first countries to kind of you know support India, so it has gained itself some sort of a political goodwill, political heft, and I think I do say India. I mean, strategically, it will continue to engage in that. Well, Tashana, we're we're out of time, but you've covered an enormous span of issues there, and I think you've really helped us understand the thinking from the Indian side of that ocean. So, uh, thank you so much, and I'd, I'd like to talk to you again. Thank you so much. This is really great. Thank you. Great. Now. Brendan Nicholson and Peter Jennings discuss the return of Australian journalists Bill Bertels and Mike Smith from China and the general deterioration in Australia-China relations. Peter, there's an awful lot happening regarding China and the circumstances seem to be accelerating, if anything. We've got the two journalists who escaped from China, Australian Financial Review's Mike Smith and the ABC's Bill Bertels, and they seem to have fled under fairly fraught circumstances. Uh, Smith commented that I feared being disappeared. It's fairly sinister. Were they wise to leave when they did? They were definitely wise to leave when they did, uh, Brendan. I, I think we're seeing an evolution of a global pattern here of, uh, of Chinese behaviour, which has impacted on a number of people from different countries, including two Canadians that have effectively become hostages in China because of the detention of a senior Huawei uh, official in uh, uh, in Canada, and and in the case of Australia, we we know we already have um, a couple of people that uh, one facing an espionage charge, the other facing a death penalty for for drug trafficking, that find themselves really becoming pawns in a game of um, sort of coercive hostage taking, which I think is where China finds itself. So I think it was very wise that our two journalists took the advice of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and got out. I think had that played quite differently, we could be in a situation where either one of them might have been held without charge for six months, because that's the Chinese pattern, and then only to find themselves being charged with some trumped-up offence a bit later. So um, I'm glad they're out and, and back in Australia. Well, another Australian journalist, Cheng Lai, uh, was arrested on August 14, it's nearly a month ago, apparently for, the Chinese said, endangering national security. What does that indicate about conditions in China and the Australia-China relationship? And is the situation getting worse? 
Well, Ms. Cheng's case is really interesting because, you know, she had been since the early 2000s working in Beijing. She, she does have Australian citizenship, but in her current job, she'd been working for years as a prominent broadcaster for uh, the Communist Party's own international television channel. One might have thought an exemplary citizen. Uh, and for her to be arrested, I, I, I think, demonstrates that at, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter who you are or what you do. If the Communist Party thinks that it's somehow addressing a tactical interest for you to be taken into custody, well, you run that risk in China. Uh, I, I thought it was quite telling that Bill Bertels said when he landed in Sydney that it was nice to be back in a country where there was the genuine rule of law. And what we have to frankly confront now is the reality of the absence of the rule of law in the current Chinese state. Uh, and I think this is going to be a risk quite clearly to China's citizens, but it will also be a risk to any foreign national that might uh, potentially be useful to the party if they're, if they're taken into custody. Foreign Minister Maurice Payne has warned Australians not to travel to China because they face the risk of arbitrary detention. Now, that's reflected in DFAT's travel advice. Is that sensible advice or is it going too far? Uh, it's very serious advice and, frankly, DFAT would not use language of that nature if it didn't have the strongest presumption that it was so. Uh, you know, DFAT's default position is not to do or say things that will be um, seen to be insightful from a, from a Chinese perspective. So I would um, urge all Australians to take that advice very seriously. Um, it, it's more than just the standard risk to life and limb that DFAT talks about in a lot of its travel advisories. And um, as we've now seen in the case of three, three cases that I've mentioned and potentially could have seen with these two journalists, that risk of arbitrary detention, I think, is increasing at the moment. Can Australia reconcile having that sort of relationship, which appears fairly dire at the moment and possibly getting worse, with its main trading partner? So here's the irony is that precisely at the time that this is happening and precisely at the time when we see barley and beef and wine uh, all being effectively sanctioned, uh, we are selling more iron ore at higher prices to China uh, than we have ever done in our history. I think Australians would be uh, entitled to ask what's going on here. Uh, well, the answer is it's always about what suits China's interests. They, they need our iron ore. They don't have a realistic option to switch to Brazil or Africa to source that supply. And I, I begin to wonder, Brendan, if we shouldn't be making more use of that lever ourselves in terms of what we can do to try to modify China's behaviour. You know, why wouldn't we be thinking about putting some tariffs on our own iron ore or some taxes on our own iron ore in a way that forces an extra price out of China? Two can play at this game of leverage. Uh, for Australia longer term, though, I think we now have a really serious problem, which is having built such a degree of um, economic dependence on China, we will have no choice other than to diversify, to try to reduce that dependence, because we've seen that with dependence comes China's interest in coercion. And I think that's something that average Australians just won't stand for that. It's worth recalling that in ASPE's recent online conference, uh, one of the speakers from Singapore actually noted that uh, we, we should relax a bit about China because he made the comment that they don't buy your iron ore because they like your face. You know, they buy it because it's good quality ore and, uh, and it comes at a good price and it's a reliable supply. Now, is the situation with China going to get worse 
And what should Australians expect to happen in the next couple of years? Look, I fear that it will get worse or or at least continue along this very bumpy path that we've seen for the last 12 months or so. Um, And that is to say there are many more products that could find themselves no longer being traded because of um, faked up concerns about, um, you know, uh, contamination or dumping. I think we're probably in a world because of COVID that is not going to see a return of um, students or Chinese tourists soon. So apart from the economic damage that does, it creates now a challenge to those two sectors as to how they can operate absent that. Chinese market. But yes, this is going to continue on. And I think what we'll see from the Australian government is what what has evolved from Scott Morrison as a kind of um, gritty, tight-lipped approach to say, well, we're here to protect our national sovereignty. But not much more than that. Um, And we'll sort of deal with these case by case. The broader picture for me in, in all of this is Does China imagine it's winning any friends globally by this type of behaviour? It's clearly not. Um, And so the longer it carries on like this, I think the more friendless China is going to become around the world. Some feel that our economy is so closely tied to China that it would be wrecked if the relationship deteriorates much further. Can astute decision-making on Australia's part, protect us from that with diversification? And is there, are there options to diversify? We're, we're certainly going to take some hits. Uh, and I don't think, for example, in the university sector that we, we can, the universities can get through this situation without a number going to the wall. Um, and, and the ones that do will be those that tied their income streams so tightly to Chinese foreign students that, that that's not going to be easily replaced. But, you know, I would observe um, over my lifetime, you know, we've seen two fundamental transitions in the shape of the Australian economy from dependence on the UK, which took a major hit when the UK decided to join the European common market. We then shifted to strongly dependent economic relationship on China, um, and that itself faded away to the de- uh, dependence that's really been created in the last 20 years, and most spectacularly the last 10 years on China. So this will change. It's not the end of the world. Indeed, it's a big world out there and lots more markets that we can choose to go and develop if we're smart enough about it. So I, I think um, you know what, what is needed is for people to get out of their comfort zones uh, and to realise that now they've got to work hard to think about alternatives. Now, it is a very big world, but China is working very hard to extend its footprint across that world. It's working hard to extend its presence throughout this region, and it's got a lot of money to invest as it gathers support. It's effectively island hopping across the Pacific. The government of the Solomons has been persuaded to switch its relationship uh, from Taiwan to mainland China, and now Kiribati has followed suit. Kiribati is a, an archipelago nation in range of Pearl Harbor, and China reportedly is offering to build a couple of ports there, even though Kiribati has little to export. Kiribati is in range of Pearl Harbor. Will the Americans allow this to happen? I, I think both the US and Australia will work very hard to ensure that China is not able to build 
naval facilities or, or even dual-use uh, commercial and potentially military-use facilities on Kiribati or indeed in other parts of the Pacific. Something that's interesting, Brendan, is that there's, there's actually quite a lot of information in open source literature, Chinese military journals, for example, which, which talks about how China thinks about the, the sort of deep ocean Pacific from a, from a strategic point of view. And, um, you know, there is no secret that in, in Chinese strategic thinking, the view is that if they were able to build a military presence through the region, this would significantly complicate American options to be able to move military force into the Western Pacific. In fact, it's, it's analogous to the strategy that the Japanese Imperial Army developed during the lead up to the Second World War, which was all about how it could extend its domain in such a way that it would make it impossible for the Americans, in theory, to, to attack Japan. Same thing is now happening in the Chinese context. And what that means is that these stories about Chinese influence building in the Pacific are immensely important in a strategic sense, both to the United States and to Australia. This is really where we get a step up from the Pacific step up. We're also seeing um, increased American interest and engagement with the Pacific Islands regions. And so if it comes to it that something like that happened, that we had the, an announcement one day of uh, a Micronesian state seeing a major port facility being constructed by China, I think that would lead to immense diplomatic pressure from uh, Australia and the United States and Japan and perhaps a few others onto that island to say, hey, we can give you a better alternative than, than that. So, yeah, this is high strategy um, on, on the high seas. There's really no mystery to why China is doing it and it also explains why there is such a, a serious focus on the part of the democracies in the region to try to prevent it from happening. Worrying times. Peter, thanks very much. Brendan, thank you. Finally, Tom Uran caught up with Fergus Ryan and research intern Daria Impiombato to discuss some of the key findings from their recent report on censorship on social media platforms TikTok and WeChat. Well, welcome to the podcast, Fergus Daria. You, together with Audrey Fritz, have released a report on TikTok, so let's dive in. How long did you spend on this research? How did you go about it? Well, we spent about eight months, I think it was, Daria. Wow, I didn't realise it was that long. February. <laughs> yeah, um, maybe even longer, um, because before we formally started, I was looking into these two apps to see the extent to which there's censorship and surveillance happening on both of them. Yeah, so that was TikTok and WeChat, right? That's right, yeah. Yep, and so there is censorship and surveillance? Oh, absolutely. Um, certainly when you look at WeChat, it has been an established fact that censorship and surveillance is taking place on that platform. What we tried to do with this report was try to gauge how much of that censorship and surveillance is being applied to foreign users of the app. So do you feel like you've really got a good handle on the censorship, moderation, whatever you want to call it, that's going on? I think we have focused a lot on the moderation side of TikTok because there was not much people knew about it. And with all the media um, coverage that um, has happened since the first leaks uh, by The Guardian last year, we noticed a pattern and it's the same pattern that it is shown in our report. So they censor or hide 
content and users are often not aware of it. But then when there is a media storm around it, they step back and they unblock it and they say it was a technical glitch. Right. So that seems to me not all too dissimilar from what sometimes happens with some of the Western platforms like Facebook. You know, there's a storm around a particular issue. Initially, they do nothing. Then they change their mind because it's clear that people are unhappy. So is, how is this different? Well, the, the way I think it's different is that um, with the other major global social media platforms, they generally start from a position where free speech is a core value. And then slowly over time, you know, in recent years, they've sort of been dragged kicking and screaming to a position where they're very conservatively carving off parts of speech that they think are unacceptable on their platforms. So we're talking about hate speech and the like. With TikTok, it's completely the opposite. They don't have free speech as a core value. And instead, their um, opening position is that they are going to make the app a non-political platform. And that's been a big part of its strategy as it has expanded around the world. So in a way, to me, when I hear that, a non-political platform that's just fun and jokes and amusing videos of cats getting thrown into walls, I actually kind of like that. So what's, what's wrong with that? I think it depends on what you value as a user. And a lot of TikTok users value the platform as a political platform like the indigenous australian woman we interviewed actually said she preferred tiktok to spread her um, activism and talk about indigenous issues in australia because of the reach it has and because the way they do it is fun and entertaining so she feels like she can get to people and it's more effective than other platforms The power of attraction. Exactly. So if TikTok decides they don't want it to be political, they are uh, stopping these people from using the platform the way they want to. One of the other concerns that's often brought up is the breach of the Communist Party. Did you look into how that affects TikTok and WeChat? Yeah, we did. Um, There's a a section in the report that is dedicated to the links that um, ByteDance, which is the company that owns and operates TikTok, Um, and Tencent, the company that owns and operates WeChat, have with the Chinese Communist Party. Tencent, because it's been around for a a while, has uh, long had a a party committee inside its governance structure. Um, ByteDance, because it's a newer company, it has come to that um, more recently, and it had to be um, pushed into that position. So in 2018, uh, the CEO, Zhang Ming, who um, is a young guy. He is not of the generation that is um, blindly loyal to the Chinese Communist Party necessarily. He's more of a sort of probably more uh, influenced by Silicon Valley than values than anything else. But he was really brought into line. And at 4 a.m. in 2018, uh, posted a public letter where he said, you know, basically, I'm sorry for not towing the party line and I, w- I will ensure that in, f- in future we're going to embed CCP propaganda into our company culture and even into the actual algorithms of the, of the company's products. Yeah, when you first told me about that, that's a really striking moment of just the power of the party over 
notionally a separate company. Totally. And um, what I um, try to explain to people who aren't watching China all the time is just listen to that anecdote and change the name of the CEO from Zhang Yiming to Mark Zuckerberg, um, change the name of the, co- the company to, from ByteDance to Facebook, um, change CCP to the Republican Party or the Democrat Party for that matter, and people would be appalled that the, the head of a tech company is saying that he's going to embed a particular ideology into the company itself and into even into its algorithms. It's, it's quite crazy, in fact. Yeah, so one of the parts of the report that I found quite interesting is that you seem to have found that that, in fact, is almost what TikTok has done when it comes to certain issues in particular places. Yeah, well, we looked particularly at Xinjiang or hashtag Xinjiang, which has had a pretty troubled history on TikTok. So before um, it was completely banned with any other topic sensitive to the Chinese Communist Party. And then those guidelines were changed once people found out that that was going on. But even since then, we have analyzed all the videos that um, were at the time under the hashtag and doing um, an analysis of the content. And we've still found that there is a lot of um, pro-CCP videos on that. And there is a lot of propagandish videos that just depict Xinjiang as this idyllic place. And they all showed up at the top. So they were like the the first available on the page, whereas the anti-CCP ones were just, there were just a few of them and they were down below. Yep. And so you also looked at some LGBTQ hashtags? We did. That was tricky because there has been a lot of media coverage around TikTok moderating LGBT content. And in December, it was in particular, only in particular locations, mostly about Turkey. But then, so we, we investigated so many languages. We tried, we translated so many terms in as many languages as we could. And the Russian one was the biggest example. And we linked it back to a controversial law that was passed a few years ago in Russia that basically made illegal any content that is gay propaganda. Right. So, so the, the assumption is because of the law, TikTok goes the next step and bans the hashtag. Yeah, I mean, it's not an assumption anymore because we put this to TikTok and they said that they are complying with local law. Now, the the problem with that is that they're not really complying with local law. They're over-complying with local law. Um, when you look at Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, any of these platforms, they don't have a policy in Russia where they ban, uh, for example, hashtag Putin is a thief in Russian or hashtag gay in Russian. Um, They allow those hashtags to exist uh, and then the users of those platforms in Russia, it's up to them whether they use it or not. But I actually should add, this censorship of these hashtags is not limited to Russia. It's in the Russian language. So if you're a Russian speaker anywhere on the planet, in Australia, in the United States, wherever, uh, it means that you are undergoing this censorship as well. So the we're in the shadow of a possible sale to who knows of of TikTok in certain countries. Um, does that 
make you feel better about TikTok? Is it okay for everyone to use it if it gets sold? I think it depends on the shape it takes. If it stays the same, it's probably going to still keep having the same issues. Like it, it's not like they say they fixed the guidelines and then they actually did because even a year after there, there are still issues going on. Yeah, I think uh, with that, um, you know, the proposed uh, Microsoft deal is limited to only a handful of countries. And I think that's unacceptable because um, you're, le- you're essentially saying that the rest of the world has to continue operating this version of TikTok, which is beholden to the Chinese Communist Party. So that makes me wonder, like, I think that TikTok and apps like that have a lot of value. People enjoy them. They're, they're actually good apps. But it makes me wonder if we'll ever, air quotes, trust an app that's not a Western app. So that's, that's the question I'll leave everyone with. Thanks, Daria. Thanks, Fergus. Thank you. Thank you. That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money. We'll be back with another episode next week. Thanks for listening.